Yeah, I, I love America. I do. Tim, you said that an awful lot. Why? Theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper, I've quoted him once before. I'm a fan of Kuyper. And he said something to the effect of, there isn't one square inch of creation where Jesus doesn't say mine. And that speaks to this kind of secular and sacred divide that sometimes we have in our brains. That sometimes, no one in here, but sometimes people might think that like this building and the stuff that happens in this building is more important than what happens in your home or what happens in your, your, your job or more important than the White House. And while gathering together is really critical, we should do that every Sunday morning, um, Jesus owns this place. Fair enough? But Jesus owns your home too. Like he presides over everything that happens in your home. And he presides over everything that happens in your job and including the White House. Do you believe that? Yeah. The, the challenge is um, not everyone does. Have you heard a little, a little fun phrase, uh, let's go Brandon? You familiar with that? You know when it started? October 21. Um, I'm not a NASCAR guy, but apparently this is how the legend goes, is um, a guy named Brandon was racing and he was about to win the Xfinity series. If you are a NASCAR fan, tell me about that. I don't know what that is. But apparently it's a race and it's a big deal. And earlier in the week, there was a president who visited a, um, a, a pretty significant uh, city in, in the United States. Um, and it wasn't taken favorably. It wasn't taken favorably. And so the crowd starts to chant. It was around the time apparently when this guy was winning. And so the announcer tries to clean up what, what's like on nationally syndicated television um, that, that's previously heard as like expletives about a particular individual. She says, no, they're saying, let's go Brandon, right? It's not politically charged. You and I both know um, that's not true. Um, the phrase actually means something rather pejorative and negative about an individual that's in the White House. I didn't know if you knew that or not. There's no such thing as a secular and secular divide. And for people that are of the resistance, which is this quiet, gentle way of holiness that Jesus summons us to, I'd submit to you today like a phrase like that and a posture of heart like that has no place in the kingdom. Verse Peter 2, he, he's telling us about how we are to, at the very least, relate to people that are in positions of authority and power, potentially even engage them. It's a challenging word because when Peter wrote this, if you remember, in the mid-first century, the tyrant Nero was not fond of Christians. He was a murderer. Can you imagine being a Christian 
um, considered perhaps one of the lowest of the low in your, in your town or city. People wouldn't associate with you because you're at odds with how the emperor wanted to run things in, in the country. Peter's telling people that a people of resistance submit. And that's a scary word. But we can do it because we are exiles and strangers in a very foreign land, and this is not our home. And he teaches us how to relate to even the, the scariest power structures. And so if you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? We're going to begin in verse 13. As we get to verse 17, would you read that out loud with me? This is what God's word says to us this morning. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Would you read verse 17 with me? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. We submit. It's a tough word. I hope to show you through the passage, though, that I, I think it makes sense and we can actually do it here today, where we're at right now. I'll give you the outline up front, okay? If you're taking notes, the first one, there are healthy expectations for submission, okay? Healthy expectations for submission. What's it going to look like? Number two, God's purpose is behind submission. God aims to do something. Our worship in submission. Man, Tim, you're talking about submission a lot. I know. Stick with me, all right? And then finally, submission is all of life. Verse 17 is a summation statement, all right? Let's go to the first one, though. Healthy expectations for submission. Look at the beginning of verse 13. What does Peter say? He says, be subject. Be subject. Another word for that is submission. Now, when you and I hear the word submission, what comes to mind? I think of mixed martial arts. I think of the UFC. Or maybe if you're an old school wrestling fan, you think of the sharpshooter or the figure four leg lock, right? getting a dude in a chokehold, imposing your will upon them, and just waiting for them to either pass out or tap, right? When they tap, what is that called? They submit. <laughs> they tap out, right? That's not the idea of submission here in the passage. It's not the idea when he says be subject to, it's not waiting on them to impose their will upon you, okay? Rather, it has something to do with me. I recognize that X person is in authority over me because of their office. And so I reserve and withhold judgment 
and rather defer to them out of respect and reverence of their office. Do you see that? It's less about being dominated. He says, and he gives reason here, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. It's not for their sake, and it's certainly not even for mine, ultimately. It's for Jesus' sake that we are subject. Full stop. Submission is falling in line for no other reason than because of Jesus. We submit to other authorities because we submit to Jesus. And we keep, I kept saying this phrase over and again throughout the book of 1 Peter, but see it here clearly. How we relate to other people reveals our relationship with Jesus. How I treat or mistreat other people, especially people in the, like verse 13, how I relate to people in positions of authority and power is how I relate to Jesus too. If I don't want to be under their leadership, what does that say about the person that put them in leadership over me? The buck doesn't stop with the person that they're complaining about. It stops with the person who put them there. What we say about our relationships reveals about what we believe about Jesus. And so I'm to be submitting to every human institution. Literally, it says every human creation. It's not just talking about politics now at this point. Young people, as you go to school or college, you listen to your professors. You abide by a code of conduct that your school has, right? When you go to your work or your job, gladly, joyfully, abiding by all their expectations for you. That's a tough word sometimes when they have you do things that you don't want to do. Notice several things here, though. Small little snippet. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Notice first that there's no expiration date here. You can look again, just just super quick. Um, Do you see like, do you see a warning label here or anything like that? I like expiration dates. They're really helpful. Um, I like drinking milk. I typically wouldn't drink milk if there was an expiration date and it was past its date. You following me? Some stuff just ends up being shelf stable though. All the time is this command in, in place. To be subject to. No warning label. If they do good, then we listen. But if not, then we riot. We don't see that here either, do we? Every human institution, though, it's not dependent upon a single individual. And this is critical. Again, remember how we talked about emperor worship, that there are some people that are put in positions, especially governmental authority and power for a specific purpose, And that is to punish evil and to praise that which is good. Back in the day, though, when emperors were brought in and put on the throne, 
It was understood that they were to be God over their country. A small God, lowercase g God, not the most powerful, but you offered worship and sacrifice to them. Rather, God is saying it's not a person that we put our trust in, and it's not merely a person that we subject ourselves to. We subject ourselves to the institution itself. And so there are expectations that come along with this. God is not saying for you and me to become a Christian nationalist. That's a very hot button topic to, to, to discuss today. There is no intermingling of being a Christian necessarily, or being an American necessarily means that you are a Christian. There, there's no idea of that in the New Testament. It's, it is about inviting all peoples from all kingdoms and all tribes and all nations to bow at the feet of Jesus and to trust him alone. So we don't blend our Christianity, our faith with our patriotism. You could still love America, but our patriotism is subordinate to him. You follow that? It's also not an invitation for us to slander or shame those that are in political office that we do not like. It's election year, right? It's my favorite time of year, next to Christmas. I'm watching all of you and your Facebook posts. But seriously, but seriously, let's sit in this for a moment, right? We're to be subject to every earthly institution. Later on, we're going to talk about the honor issue here. Jesus is okay with politics. He is not okay with us politicking. There's a really stark contrast between how the world works. And when I say world, I'm including America in that as well. This might be the best governmental system that we have right now, but it will not be in the kingdom of God. We don't vote on Jesus, right? Jesus reigns, period, the end. So we don't slander those that are made in his image. Even when we disagree with them in significant ways, we honor them as best as we can. But likewise, and I don't want to be careful here, um, I had a discussion with someone about this at the end of the first service. What I'm not suggesting is every Christian needs to be a political activist either. At the very least, though, when you look at the ministry of Paul, he was aware of his rights as a Roman citizen, and he leveraged them to communicate the gospel to lost people throughout the Roman Empire. And so there is, at the very least, some kind of element where we can engage the culture. Perhaps even an expectation. Tim, where do you get this? We're subject to every human institution. Why? Because it's the Lord's sake. 
but we also communicate or we also subject ourselves to those that punish and do evil, excuse me, to those that are supposed to punish and do evil or to those who are supposed to praise people when they do good. Ultimately, that you may silence those that are foolish. In other words, we live in such a way where we don't bring reproach upon the kingdom of God when we're trying to fight tooth and nail about how this world works. We know ultimately, finally, the kingdom is what matters. It's an invitation for us not to squabble about things that are secondary. You and I are people that live in between two worlds, two realities. You and I, most of us in here were born as Americans. Most of us in here today are American citizens and that comes with incredible freedom. But also if you trust in Jesus, Peter just said in verse 16, you are the freest people on the planet not because of where you were born, but rather because you were born again. You're sojourners and strangers. This is not your home. This is the language Peter keeps pointing us to over and again. Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of you have this as your life verse? Anyone? I'm sure you've heard it before. I know the plans that I have for you. God's speaking to a bunch of exiles right now, Israel heading to Babylon. Can you imagine that? I know the plans that I have for you, plans to not harm you, but to see you prosper. God's telling a group of people the good news after he sends them away from their homeland. This is what he says in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The next verse is not waiting for them to be teleported out of danger and calamity and hardship. What does he say? He says, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce and take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Rather, seek the welfare of the city where I have exiled you to and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. He's borrowing language over and again, reminding you and me of who we are. And as exiles awaiting Jesus to return, he says, dig in right here, right now. We work really hard right here, right now, until the Lord comes. We can engage. We can engage with the culture around us. And people benefit and God gets glory when we do good things in our city, in our towns, in our neighborhoods. It is no small thing to bring lunch to an elementary school. It's no small thing to host breakfast here for a bunch of high school football students. 
It's no small thing to be present with a bunch of kids at that high or that elementary school with this, for the sake of establishing presence with them so that you might win them with the gospel. We do good things so that people might see Jesus. You might say it's really dark here and it's only ran by lying politicians that are not held accountable by anyone. I just want to be about getting the gospel out. And friends, so do I. I do too. But you and I are to work in such a way that it makes it easy for people to hear the gospel and not more difficult. And certainly in how we carry ourselves in the conversation, especially around election time, can make that hard and difficult. So we work through physical, organized, and perhaps even governmental, institutional ways in order to engage and reach people. There were a couple of people throughout church history that did this very well. One, Justin Martyr. You familiar with him? He's a brother from mid-second century. Why does he matter? Because he wasn't just a great apologist. He wasn't just helping people think critically about the Christian faith, but he was also writing to the Roman emperor at the time so that he can get protection for Christians in the Roman Empire. Read his stuff. I won't go into all of it. But another one is William Wilberforce. I imagine more people are familiar with him. Wilberforce was a politician, a British politician that worked tirelessly for the demolition of the slave trade in the United Kingdom. This is what he said. So enormous and so dreadful and so irredeemable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for its abolition. Let the consequences be what they would be. I from this time on determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. He goes on to say, it is the true duty of every man to promote the happiness of his fellow Christian to the utmost of his power. God Almighty has set before me two great objects. And the first one was the suppression of the slave trade. Not everyone is called to be a politician. Wilberforce was. Justin Martyr wasn't. But they both worked within the system that they had for the good of the people that lived in that system. Do you see that? And when governments and institutions are supposed to when they're supposed to punish evil and praise what is good and they don't do that, someone has to speak. We have to speak and bring a corrective measure, a corrective lens for them to see God is ultimately just and most wise. So your politics and how you lead your life it can lead other people to praise Jesus. How we submit, how we function in this world, this is our worship to him. Notice 
Notice, though, that there might be a day when conversation just doesn't work anymore. But the culture or institution or people in power, what they might expect of us is so out of line that they might actually call us to disobey the commandments that God has for us. And so what do we do then? What does verse 16 say? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But as living servants, living as servants of God. Friends, don't scoff at this, especially practically-minded people. Again, the most freest people on the planet are people that love Jesus and follow Jesus. Even those that live in North Korea who have no freedoms are more free than people that don't follow Jesus and are here today. Submission to earthly authorities is ultimately a worship thing. But sometimes you and I, we need to move outside of what culture expects of us. Two more examples. Can you handle two more examples? Our church history, not just HBC, but the history of the church is filled with amazing godly people that wanted to uphold governmental authorities, but realized sometimes we have to color outside the lines. And that brings glory and honor to Jesus too. First two are Jan Hus and William Tyndall. Those two men are perhaps responsible for the Protestant Reformation because they were putting the Bible back in the hands of the people. In a day and age when it was illegal for them to give the Bible away in the common language, they had to rely on people that were teaching them bad theology and bad truth about Jesus and calling them to do really unhelpful, perhaps damning things. William and Jan spent their life so that people like you and me can have the Bible in their own language, and they were ultimately burned at the stake. Or Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, writer, thinker. He didn't start off that way. He had to color outside the lines too. As a slave, he runs away. As a slave, he learns how to read. He gets saved though, and his Christianity is what influences him to condemn slavery and pursue freedom for all. And so our allegiance is not to a flag, it is to the kingdom that is not of this world. Hard question. Is your life characterized by allegiance to our great country or is it characterized by allegiance to our great king, Jesus? Is your life patterned around the Bill of Rights more than it is the Sermon on the Mount? Are you more happy to exercise your freedoms that you have here and now 
for your advancement or do you use your freedom as God's servant for other people's good and their rescue and salvation? And submission is all of life. And rightly ordered at that. As we go through the rest of this chapter, going into chapter three, we're going to see the importance of ordering our life according to God's way. But look at the pattern of the last verse. What does he say? He says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. It's worth hearing again. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Peter's saying you might not have caught the other three verses and that's, that's okay. Let me give it to you in small form. The expectation is not to submit to everyone. certainly to the institution. People of of resistance submit to the institution, governmental authorities. When we hear honor everyone though, what does he mean? The only one here in this passage that is to be feared and revered is God which means that there is only one who's worthy of worship and that is God. But we give honor to everyone. That means that we prefer people. We prefer them over us. It means that we think well of them. It means that we assume the best out of them. It means that we think more highly of them than ourselves. He uses the same kind of language here Paul, as Paul does when he says that we are to honor our parents. Friends, do you think of politicians in the same way that your kids think of you? That's another command that doesn't have an ex- expiration date, right? Parents, show of hands, how many of you want your kids to honor you all the days of your life? That's a fairly good expectation, right? You want them to respect and acknowledge you and your wisdom. You want them to come to you for advice. You want them to hear you. In some way, you want them to treasure you. Do you think of politicians, though, in the same way that you want your kids to think of you? You think of your boss in the same way that you think of your mom and dad. Friends, election year is here. We'll close with this. Instead of slandering or bashing candidates, no one in here would do that. Watching everyone's Facebook page. Instead of slandering, we practice gentleness. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree but our tone and heart posture comes out in normal everyday conversation. 
A heart of submission and subjection is not prone to slander. You and I are built different. We're born again to be different. Jesus saved us and rescued us to be different in this world. And it's to his praise and his glory and honor. He receives good stuff when you and I demonstrate wisdom and holiness. Again, Jesus is not against our politics. He's against politicking and the nastiness that goes with them. But forever and ever and ever, keep in mind primarily and foremost, love America. You should do that. Enjoy Lana's barbecue tomorrow. (laughs) But remember that you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom first. As an emissary of his here to lost people, he sends you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and thank you for the word. Thank you for the hard word that you gave to Peter. Um, Politics are sticky and challenging and sometimes it looks like people that are ill-equipped for the job end up getting the job. Um, But you're not surprised by this. You're the one that put them there. And so as an act of worship, help us subject ourselves to every earthly institution, not for their sake or ours, but for yours. Help us, please. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.